Boy, am I excited about this week's guest, Anne-Sophie Martin. A massive shout out to Jenna Hussein for sharing Anne-Sophie's contact with me. And we ended up connecting when I was traveling through the US during the back end of last year. Anne-Sophie completed her MBA at Stanford, one of the greatest business schools in the world. And it was there where her interest in mental health grew. But her journey started much earlier. Her career started in management consulting in New York City. Uh, it was during this time when she was working where she started speaking a lot more openly about her struggle with anxiety, even to the point where it led her to take medical leave from work. Often this looks very different for different people, but for her it meant losing hair, getting sick frequently, and a persistent change in appetite. For many folks doing an MBA at Stanford, one of the greatest business schools out there, it's a pathway into many careers. You know, in many ways, your world is your oyster. And I'm not disputing that at all, but it often comes with its own challenges. And perhaps I speak for myself, but often I see folks who study at these top institutions and you sometimes forget that they're human. They've excelled at school, work at top companies, and somehow continue to have an endless reservoir of energy to keep on going. Conversations like the one with Anne Sophie reminds me that we're all human. No matter what we've accomplished or where we've come from, being with loved ones, redefining what well-being means to us, and doing more of the things that make us smile are all ingredients to a more fulfilling life. Anne-Sophie is a kind, intentional, and values-driven human being, and I'm so excited to see where she goes in her lifetime. But one thing I should say is that English is not her first language, and she absolutely nails it. So I hope you enjoy the listen as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with her. Here's Anne-Sophie. I know I want to dig into your article uh, that you posted on Medium. You've published a few and mental health is a space that's very close to your heart as well. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously who we are today chores many threads to how we've grown up and our formative years. What was growing up in Canada like in Montreal? Uh, in your early years yeah well first of all just want to thank um Jen I knew for reading I love to write even better when you know that people are reading and that what I'm writing is resonating um so love to hear that <laughs> about my upbringing so I grew up in Montreal Canada so I'm French Canadian uh Quebecois as we say so my first language is French and yeah I, I had a great childhood both my parents were working. Uh, I also have a you know, younger sister. We were a really busy family going from like gymnastics practice to exploring the arts and culture scene in Montreal to, you know, even like hockey games and piano lessons. Um, but we always kind of found time to get back together as a family and mm -hmm. just like enjoy like, you know, watching a movie on Friday night. Was, was mental health much of a topic that you reflected on or thought about? Um, is that if, even in Montreal itself, I'm not sure. I've never been to Canada, but the culture that exists there. Um, I'd say my parents were mostly open with it. I think it never felt like taboo in my family. It always felt like if you need help, then just go get the help you need. Yes. And access to therapists was something that never felt too difficult um, growing up. Um partially because my parents were able to pay out of pocket. Um, but also I feel like there's a little bit more of a supply than in the U.S. Um, 
I don't have like the exact numbers, but that was just like from anecdotally from my experience seeking therapy, both in Canada and now most in most recent years in the US just found that, you know, the path to care a lot easier um, in Canada. And I think a lot of it goes to, you know, my parents, like I said, to making, you know, me feel that it was just okay. Sometimes when we think about therapy and getting access to help, it's often painted as this picture where you, you sit on the other side of someone and you spill your heart. I guess that's how uh, uh, Western medicine or Western therapy kind of sees it sometimes. But my personal view is there's many alternate ways to therapy. It can come in very small doses. Conversations like this, I find quite therapeutic. Uh, reading up on you, I know uh, water skiing, uh, I think it was ice skating and dance are, are big passions of yours. And were you quite active as a kid growing up? Uh, what role did some of those sports play for you just in general? Yeah. And I agree with you on like, I think mental health needs to be more nuanced. Yeah. I always like to say it's a spectrum. And my first therapy was four sessions and I got yeah. what I needed out of it. It wasn't because it was broken or it wasn't, you know, like a big, this like big mental health thing. Um, so definitely, you know, agree with you on that in terms of, you know, sports growing up definitely were a huge part of my bringing. I did gymnastics for almost a decade and then, you know, switched to hockey, ice hockey. And my friends were like, what, you know, gymnastics and hockey doesn't make sense. But I was just like kind of following what my passions were at the time. And then dancing, water skiing is something that we do as a family kind of every morning um, of, you know, summer growing up. So that's kind of a shared interest of ours. Um, and I think it's just like, grounds me makes me forget about everything else I'm just very much in the moment um, yeah. so I always get something very positive out of my kind of active um you know kind of sessions or workouts mm. is it is it something you did with your siblings at all or um like yeah what did what did the team environment or community look like for you when you were playing some of those sports um there were definitely some you know sports or activities that I did with my sibling my sister or with my parents um you know things as like simple as going on a walk on the weekends but I'd say the sports that I did I really valued the friendship that I made through gymnastics through hockey mm. through dance and just seeing the same people every day or every week um and creating that bond over time was yeah something that I um looked forward to mm. yeah there's a uh i've i've been fortunate here in the u.s to visit some of the sports so ice hockey is not a big thing in, in australia <laughs> obviously um neither is negative temperatures which i think yeah. is a, a commonality in canada uh and i was fortunate to visit a nba game in new york and i was making a joke because i was with a couple of friends that it almost feels like i had like five tickets to the one game uh, not because I just watched an NBA game, but there was like a breakout dance, like break dancing that was happening in the halftime. Uh, there was a DJ, there was like cheerleaders. So it felt like such a great steal for like uh, whatever I paid for the ticket. Uh, I almost got like five different events in one. So I can see how North America makes entertainment happen. And you guys do not fail to capitalize on the small breaks in between. Like this is, it's just go, go, go the whole entire time. So um I think that's been a pleasant surprise over here. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, you started speaking publicly about your mental health in 2019 and also talking about how you had to take medical leave um, due to anxiety at work as well. And you talked about that in your article. Um, 
Could you perhaps just go deeper into kind of what happened and why you wanted to go public about it? So the background story here is I was working in consulting and about a year and a half into my time in management consulting, um, I was based out of New York and um, just started experiencing high levels of anxiety. I feel like I've always had a little bit of anxiety, even now looking back to my you know, early years as a kid, I think it was always there, but it, I think it got to a point where I just, um, just could not function um, and got put on medical leave. Um, you know, saw the doctor and they asked me to take five weeks off. Mm. Um, it doesn't sound like much, but for me at the time, I just, I did not see that coming. I kind of, I was 23 years old, um, overachiever. I thought I was invincible um, and kind of being, having to say to my manager, I'm not going to be able to finish this project. I'm not going to be able to work um, was definitely something that, I just, yeah, did not see coming and, and felt like a really big, big deal at the time. After those five weeks, I was also at 50% for a few months. Um, so it's not like you just, you know, take a little bit of time off and then you're you're good to go. I think the, the road to recovery was a little longer than expected. Um, and I learned a ton from that experience. Um, I think I learned that recipe for wellness can look very different on different people. Um, I also learned that what you need for your mental well-being can change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to go back to consulting. I kind of wanted to a little bit like proof to myself that I could do this work, that this mm-hmm. was just like a bump in the road. And I also loved the work. Um, so it was just about how do I go back to consulting, but in a way that is sustainable, in a way that makes me a better employee, makes me more productive. And I think by starting to set some small boundaries here and there with the people that I was working with, I got to a place where I was like, okay, I am definitely now much happier, healthier, and also more productive and better, a better employee to, to my company in the end. Um, So I think mental health is like always, we're always kind of a work in progress. Um, never done uh, <laughs> and I learned a ton from that experience yeah the I almost feel like sometimes wellness and management consulting are antonyms uh, <laughs> and <laughs> the especially with the the people listening to this episode a lot of them are from like my friends and my uncle's friends who's my co-host as well from university a lot of us studied finance economics a lot of the listenership um obviously there's uh, I think broad listenership but um, a lot of the people are in consulting or banking or law, um, just naturally because that's the friendship circle for some of us. And it's interesting you you spoke about the overachiever mindset. Did you, and obviously I want to tap into the GSB because I feel like that's a whole nother environment where the bar just gets uh, raised to a whole new level. But when you started experiencing anxiety and a lot more prominently when you were 23 like what were the warning signs in you that hang on a second like I can feel this bottling up quite a bit um and yeah could you describe that in a bit more detail because sometimes I feel like we just neglect that and mm-hmm. events like this happen where we kind of just like it, it always comes to this crescendo in many ways so yeah there were definitely some signals that I decided to ignore at the time um Things like I started losing a lot of hair. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I started getting sick all the time, like getting colds. Uh, I had fever for a few days. One morning I woke up and my face had like doubled in size for mm. no apparent reason. Um, I was also crying in the bathrooms at random times. Um, my appetite was all over the place. Um, so there were like all these signs, but when you're 23, you're on this project, it was only 12 yeah. weeks long. I had six more to go. You're kind of like, I'm just going to power through. Um, and, and then I'll, I'm going to take care of my health. Mm. And I realized that postponing my health was not the solution. And I obviously like hit a wall at some point where I was just no longer functioning um, properly, but there were all these signs definitely um, that I was just like ignoring because of all the reasons that I expressed. Eventually decided to talk about this experience um, a year after it happened. Mm -hmm. So I shared my story with the 5,000 employees of Oliver Wyman, the consulting firm that I was with at the time, also published newspaper articles. I was invited to facilitate a number of lunch and learns with different companies, mm -hmm. primarily in Canada. And I think I was just interested in creating an open dialogue on the topic which was not happening you mentioned like these like circles yeah. at least like in consulting in my circles I felt like the few mental health or wellness conversations that were happening were always with like these partners who had a amazing 20 plus year long career um and also always talking about the num the hours where yeah. like for me it never felt that it was about the hours it felt about like you know, the anxiety in the moment, the expectations, there were just so many more nuances that I wanted to bring to the conversation. Um, and so I kind of decided to share my story to both create that dialogue, share those nuances. And it also felt like very therapeutic, honestly, mm -hmm. to be almost like out in the open, because uh, yeah. for a while, it felt like I needed to keep this a secret. I remember going back to work um, and then some, you know, colleagues had noticed that I'd been gone for a few weeks and they were like, oh, I hope you, you know, got yeah. a great vacation or like, <laughs> you travel too? and I was like, oh gosh, how do I, and I wasn't ready at the time to share yeah. what happened. Um, so I think just like being like, Hey, this happened. I'm still alive. I actually think I'm even like, you know, better mm. than before, um, felt like closure for me yeah. in a way. It was yeah. both for others, but also for myself that I shared. Yeah. How how do you um yeah what what was the response like when you did share um and you know yeah like yeah what was the response like and, and I feel like sometimes I, I I relate to you because right now what I'm doing is I'm taking time off work I left my job basically traveling trying to figure out what I'm doing and also a part of it is detaching my identity away from my full time job. So I'm just wondering, like, how how did you navigate some of those conversations when you did get asked? Because there's going to be many points in our life where we will just need to take the foot off the throttle and take time to ourselves. And so I think there's a lesson in there around navigating that gracefully, but also authentically that you don't kind of, yeah, hide parts of yourself when you do share those stories. Yeah. Um, a few thoughts on this. I just maybe starting with like the response from when I shared my story. Um, something that I realize is if you're willing to be vulnerable, people are going to reciprocate that. And yeah. so it was very interesting for people to be like, Hey, something similar happened to me or like I resonate because of X, Y, Z. Um, 
And so I think also me mm-hmm. and me sharing, I gave permission to others to also share their story. Yeah. Um, I think I, you know, upon reflecting, I felt comfortable sharing because I have a good support system around me. Mm-hmm. I have a loving family. I have a loving husband. I was like, if you think that this makes me weak or you know, whatever, like stigma you want to put to this, like I am okay because mm. I've got people behind me who will love me no matter what. Yeah. And I realized this is not something everybody has, but this is something I had. And so as a result, made me feel comfortable. Um, if there was anyone who would, you know, look at my story and maybe like judge me for it. Um in terms of like detaching yourself from work, I think that's something I'm actively working on. Um, it's very easy when also like I feel like schools condition you to like look for results. You get the A plus, you get a you know, everyone is like, wow, wow, wow. Um, and I think working is very similar in that sense. Um, and I think just realizing that even if I had no career, no nothing at this point, I'm still I still have like good qualities. I still have lots, you know, to offer. I'm still like a full person, mm. um, but I think that's like easier said than done and something that I'm still working through. Yes. Yes. You know, hard on the pun. Uh, and I know this is almost like out of context in some ways, but in like, if, if this was a parallel universe, so obviously that's the pun. <laughs> if this was a parallel <laughs> universe, um, like what do you think? And Sophie would be doing in that parallel universe. If it was very different or wildly different to the world that you're currently in at the moment. What would I be doing? I always like to say if I had to like have a second life, yeah. so to speak, I would love to become a professional dancer. Um, I really love dancing for me. It's a mix of like sports and arts. Um, I just feel like I become alive when I'm on stage and performing. Um, it's something that just yeah it gives me like peace and so much happiness Hmm. Um, obviously I'm now a little too old to (laughs) decide to become a professional dancer but if I was like (laughs) 12 or you know 15 years old again um I would definitely consider it a little bit more seriously do you do you still like and and like in what ways do you keep those elements of like artistic expression and fun and that sense of you know um I don't know how to describe it, like kind of on stage and, you know, you've kind of got uh, the eyes on you type of thing. Like how, how do you sort of maintain that today? I, the, the truth is that I, I don't, um, but I wish I did more of it. I do support the arts. So I think being in New York, mm. I have access to so much arts and shows and museums. Um, so I think that's my way of consuming art, but in terms of expressing it, um, something I'll need to to focus on there's yeah. something that I'm like searching for but I haven't found like a good yeah. way to focus on my you know daily routine one of the other questions I had um just before going into some of your GSP experience is did you like you know when you, when you started speaking uh openly about your story and like after coming back from that leave that five-week block what did your like what was your mindset then like how, how did those five weeks sort of shift or change the way you started viewing things, if if it did at all? Five weeks is not a long time. Mm. So to some extent, a lot of what I did during those five weeks was just, you know, sleep and eat healthy and get some fresh air and, you know, try to do meditation or like bring myself, like slow the pace down a little bit. 
you know, you asked like what, what changed, I think in five weeks, it was just like realizing how much anxiety there was there to start with. Yeah. Um, I, I went back to work kind of expecting things to go back to normal and no more here was like what I knew from before and realized that I could not do that. Um, mm. I needed to find kind of a new normal. I had a lot of, um, fear associated with work, fear that this would happen again, fear that I wasn't good enough, fear that, um, you know, I was going to be judged differently or put on easier projects because people, you know, the people who knew about this would kind of make their own interpretations of it. Um, so I think it was just like realizing that there was anxiety, that there was work to do, that it was mm -hmm. not going to be overnight. Okay. You had five weeks off. Now you're good. Go um kind of realization and to some extent i'm still working through a lot of those things yeah yeah the especially given given the fields that you're in or we're in at the moment i think it's often quite tough and it's often on us so the onus obviously comes on us to try and self-regulate and put those boundaries in place and the so the the, the other point i wanted to touch on is Obviously, after re-establishing a new normal, <clears throat> taking time off, learning a little bit more about yourself, post your time in consulting, um, you decided to take on the GSB and and the MBA at Stanford. What and and you you published an article called uh, "The Twenty Percent That May Make You Lose Your Mind." Um, what was this piece about? Yes. Um, so as you pointed out, I completed my MBA at Stanford. Uh, so was there these past two years. And I just wanted to bring light to how difficult the experience can be. And I definitely did not want to sound that the MBA was not. It was an extraordinary experience. And everything that we hear about it is exactly true. I met incredible people. I learned a ton. There was lots of personal growth. I got to meet amazing guest speakers. Um, I got to travel the world. I had a lot of time off. Uh, so all of that was really fun and great. But there is a little bit of the experience that is challenging. Um, mm -hmm. Imposter syndrome, you are constantly comparing yourself to people who are extremely overachievers, who it just always feels like you're never doing enough compared to all your classmates. Um, at times also, it feels a little bit like you're lost. You yeah. went a lot of people do an MBA to find themselves. Um, but I think that search process and personal growth process is very challenging. Yeah. In itself. There's also a feeling that time flies so quickly. It's two years. You did, you know, it is a big opportunity cost for a lot of people and you want to make the most out of those two years. Um, mm. But then, you know, semester finishes and another one and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm already like halfway through my experience. And mm. so it's all about like optimizing almost like every single moment. Yeah. Um, so all of that made the experience at times overstimulating um, and quite challenging. I'll speak for myself, but I know anecdotally that I'm probably not the only one who kind of felt that there was definitely times in the experience that um, we're not like all rosy and shiny and, mm. you know, fun. Yeah. There's a, even, even uh, speaking to Jenna and I hope she didn't mind I share this, but basically I feel like those that go into these MBA programs, especially at Stanford, everyone's kind of on their 
best behavior, first impressions for like the first couple of months. And then there's a point perhaps, I don't know, six months in where you realize that everyone's kind of like as lost as each other. Uh, <laughs> did, did that like, like, did that, pure, does that, did that apply to you? And like, how did you find that when you could finally perhaps lower your guard down a little bit? Yeah, I'd say for me, it came at the one year mark. I think second year, there's still a little bit of that left, but you've gotten to know people a lot more personally, a lot more deeply, and people are more willing to share about their own struggles. And then you kind of just realize that we're all in this together. Um, so that helped. Uh, and I know early on in your journey uh, at Stanford, you got the chance to speak on stage uh, as part of the talk. Could you run me through what was that? What that was like, especially being, I think, the first to go on stage out of your batchmates. So, what did what yeah? What did that open up? How did you feel? And what did you share? So, talk is a GSB tradition. Every week, we have two classmates who share for about twenty-five to thirty minutes about their personal life story, and everyone can take this in every direction, um, in any direction that they like, and they are introduced by you know, someone they choose could be friend, family member, uh, really anyone. So it's a great way to get to know our classmates on a very like deep, vulnerable level. I was, yeah, the first, it's a lottery system. And I remember getting an email being like, hey, you're going to be the first one to do a talk. And I was like, holy shit. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I was kind of both like excited, nervous, like all the feelings. Um, so what I ended up sharing was, um, I like to say that I like stretched myself like 15%. So a lot of it, I was comfortable sharing because I had shared this already regarding my experience with anxiety, my decision to talk publicly about it, um, my medical leave. And there was a 15% that felt like a little newer for me to share. And a lot of that was around my um, perception of my own appearance. And so that was definitely a little bit more of a stretch and something that I was, you know, happy and willing to share with my classmates. Upon reflection, I think I, I gave the impression that I was um, good and great, and I had, like, figured out everything, and that was definitely not the idea. Um, but being the first, I think I wanted to both be vulnerable, but also, you know, show some level of strength, um, so yeah, I think it's it, it was definitely a great experience. And a lot of my classmates knew me a lot better after I gave the talk than I knew them. I was like, you're still a stranger to me, but you know everything about my life. So that was kind mm. of a weird and cool feeling at the same time. Yeah. The you you mentioned a point around stretching 15%. And I often come back to this quote, which is uh you go fast when you're alone, but you go further uh together. And I think that applies to many different circumstances in life when you've got a loving husband, partner, family, you just go much further and that stretches you in, in many ways. After you gave the talk as part of talk uh, at GSV, how how did you find people? Like, so did, did people come to you and share parts of their story and become vulnerable? Did you stretch even beyond 15% with some of them as well? Um, definitely. I think there were people who reached out saying how it resonated with them. Um I continued sharing more about myself, not necessarily immediately, but as it felt comfortable. I think the beauty of 
talk is that you do have a lot of ownership over what you decide to share and not share. Um, And I think writing it beforehand allowed me to be very specific about the words that I wanted to use to talk about my story and gave Mm. a lot of confidence to do that. Um, I went deeper with some classmates as friendships developed, um, but that is something that obviously like does not happen like overnight. And I think there's an expectation that you just like, you know, share all your secrets and you're like most Mm. personal life stories in one go. Mm. I, I want to ask you, uh, it's an interesting point you brought up because sometimes I feel that, you know, I, I was at that stage when I was starting this podcast. I feel like probably like midway through this journey in the last three, so I've been doing this for three years with Mank. Uh, and there was a part in this journey where I felt that, oh, like, let's just be vulnerable and just share my story with everyone because, you know, why not like be authentic? But I think part of that, I also realized you kind of have to be careful with how you share your story and who you share it with, because sometimes people might not have their best intent, like your best intentions in, in their heart and their mind. Um, and I think now I'm at this stage where it's, you know, I still want to be authentic and vulnerable and share my story, but also being conscious about um, why am I sharing it in the first place? And then who do I share it with and and rightfully selecting those people and those spaces where you feel that trust and belonging is it something you thought about at all? And especially, I suspect, in the GSB environment, everyone is incredibly well accomplished. Everyone is doing great things. But, you know, there's also this art of maintaining that image and maintaining that structure because that's, you know, I, I don't know, like, perhaps I'm just rambling on here, but I think, you know, did you did you suspect that, I guess, did you think through how you wanted to share your story and it, was it something you're conscious about, I guess, as you were sharing it? One of the reasons why I enjoy writing so much, or at least prefer writing to maybe more like verbal communication, um, <laughs> it's just that it allows me to get the words right and yeah. really reflect on, especially if it's my first time touching on a topic, it allows me to pause, to think, to reflect, to get the story, to tell the story in a way that I'm comfortable with. Um, and proud to be sharing that story. I think in writing my talk, I think I have like 15 different drafts and versions of it because I was really trying to focus on what I was comfortable sharing, but also the like how I wanted to share it and what I think a talk is you want to emphasize on certain life events, but I also wanted to talk about my family and my bringing. And there was, I think we're all so complex and 25 minutes can only capture so much. So there was a lot of reflection behind that. What what does your writing process and writing journey look like? Because I know uh, you shared you shared a couple of articles through Medium and then on LinkedIn itself. And I know I don't know what the exact statistic is, but I remember reading up that like I think five percent of users on LinkedIn or something like that end up posting. So there's a big segment, ninety five percent. I don't know if that's the exact percentage, but I know it's something sub ten. And I suspect that out of that ninety percent that aren't publishing, let's just say it's 10% that do publish, I suspect many of them would like to publish. And perhaps there's this fear um, or like, you know, fear of judgment, or perhaps they don't have like the right tools to understand what the best way is to write, whatever it might be. So perhaps I think I would just like to learn a little bit more around your writing process and how you go about kind of articulating and crafting the right words over those 15 iterations. Maybe I can just walk through my writing journey. And I'm I'm not like a professional writer whatsoever. It's just something that I've always enjoyed doing, even when I was a little kid. 
I published my first newspaper article in La Presse, which is kind of the biggest uh, newspaper back home in the province of Quebec um, about my, you know, medical leave and personal mental health journey. Um, that was a, an article that was published in French and I've published a number at this point, three articles in French. So I, I feel like I'm pretty lucky to be able to both write in French and English um, and reach different audiences that way. Um, and then the last two years at Stanford, I was part of Non-Disclosure, which is kind of the GSB's online magazine. And, and through that, got access to Glenn Cremon, who's who used to work at the New York Times um, as an editor. So he also gave me a lot of like good pointers and um, and support. I'd say my process is just like if there's if I have a thought or an idea, I'll just write it down. I'll write a couple bullets. Maybe I'll like sit down one day and just like write the worst first draft ever, just so I have something on paper and then reflect on why I'm writing this. Um, why me? Also, like what makes me the best person to talk about this? Um, and then sometimes there's a little bit of research also that I need to do to support my arguments. It obviously like depends on the type of piece I'm writing. If it's more of a a point I'm trying to make, or if it's more of a personal life story, those processes look a little different, but I don't have like a set like timeline. I don't want to feel rushed when I'm writing. Um, I want to be able to go back to it and like have as many versions as possible until I'm comfortable with it. Um, and then just put it out in the world and see if it resonates with readers. Have you had people that have come to you for writing advice and like you've helped them navigate that journey, but yeah. I wish I, that, I, yeah. I, I wish I was that good of a writer. So no, <laughs> not. Um, I mean, I did help um, people at Sanford as a non-disclosure editor. So edit the pieces, um, but no one has come uh, directly to me for writing <laughs> advice. I, I wish I could be that good. Um, maybe one day. No, no. Something to look for. Well, I, 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 um, and I was just saying to you before we clicked record that uh, this week I'll be staying with a friend uh, at GSB uh, and on campus because he's studying his MBA there. And so there's a lot of organic marketing that I'll probably be doing on the ground, <laughs> just like <laughs> finding folks that want to write and get them to listen to this episode and then reach out to you. So you might see an influx of messages that come through, but I know so, uh, my mate, he's starting his first year at the GSB. So I think they've probably got exams just around this time, actually. Um, and so I'm staying with them just after the exam uh, hump. A lot of those folks probably listening in are about to embark on a pretty rewarding two years, but also a very challenging two years in front of them. You know, if, if you could go back to your time at the GSB, I know obviously perhaps um, you might not want to change many things, like you're probably very happy with a lot of things that happened over those two years, but those listening in that are about to embark on these two years, is there anything, you know, you would share with them around making the most of that time and perhaps leaning into that 20% a little bit more? It was, so I did my JSB experience. I went through my JSB experience with my husband. So I'm, so we both got accepted at the same time, started at the same time. Just sharing that because I think the way he did JSB and I did JSB were a little different. So it kind of, you know, there's like two examples here. And I think there's no good way of doing GSB. Something that I realized early on is that I was more introverted um, than my husband per se. And so, for example, I would, to, to save energy for the evening dinners that we had and the evening activities, 
I would eat lunch at home. I would always go back home in between classes to recharge. Um, and that was my introvert break. Um, whereas my husband loved staying on campus and grabbing lunch with friends. I also decided to skip a lot of the big um, party activities. It, sound, it sounds very like simple to just say no to certain things, but when you're at the GSB in the moment, I, I did find it difficult at first to say, I'm not going to go to that and I'm going to take a night off or I'm going to, you know, just, you know, grab a drink with one friend instead of a hundred friends. But figuring out those, you know, that a little bit early on, like what you're saying no to and you feel comfortable doing and saying no to, um, I'd say is, was kind of a, a big learning and something that made my second year a lot more um, sustainable. For you, obviously, you had your husband with you physically uh, on campus and doing the program with you. But I know a lot of folks that go into these programs have loved ones back home, perhaps in a different country, perhaps in a different state, uh, a mixture of relationships and marriages, but whatever it is, it's long distance in many ways. And uh, inevitably, someone's busy or both will be very busy just doing their own thing. How granted, I guess, like you and your husband were there physically together, what did quality time look like and amidst a really busy two years where you're both studying quite hard you're both um you know trying to figure out what life looks like after the gsb you've paid quite a bit of money and so you do feel like you want to make the most of those experiences and sometimes that might mean going on certain retreats or certain holidays with friends just to build that connection but what does what did quality time look like and i think this is i'm thinking more broader just around when you've got two folks that are really busy in their own worlds, trying to create their own identity and their own sense of community. How do you come together and have quality time amidst all that chaos and that noise? I'll share what we do. And there might yeah. be a number of different ways to, you know, get that quality time with your life partner. Um, for us, it was about being intentional. So almost like scheduling time in our calendars to be like, this is a date night or like Saturday morning, we're going on a bike ride, just the two of us and sharing those activities and the second thing that we also learned to do is not neglect the like small moments you know you're brushing your teeth at night like you know just like catching up on the day like little little moments when the two of you are together um or just like take advantage of those to to you know give each other a hug or like a you know word of appreciation or something mm. so i think that's that's how we did, you know, get quality time over at GSB. And I think that continues in our post GSB life today. It's good. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, you, you tackled my question head on, which is, I guess this continues post GSB, uh, being in New York, both of you carving out your career, um, and being in such a big city, like maintaining those practices that bring you a lot of joy and a smile on your face is incredibly important. Um, yeah, nice. <laughs> I, yeah, it's a it's it's a tough balance, and uh, especially because I'm doing long distance at the moment with my partner. I've been trying to convince her to play chess online, so I guess that's my version of quality time. But I don't, I don't think I'm winning that one. <laughs> uh, just uh, wanted to ask you around. I know at the GSB, empathetic and authentic leadership is a big thread throughout the way they coach and teach the students. Um, so. You know, how do you be an authentic leader? How do you lead by example? And um, I can't remember the motto, but obviously changing organizations, changing the world through good leadership. 
And now as you embark on your post-MBA journey at Parallel, you've got quite a senior role. You've probably got people reporting into you, or at least you're feeding into different functions. How how do you think about leadership now? And how do you like similarly think about you know, when employees come to you or when people come to you with problems and what they're going through in life, unpacking that in a way that's graceful, but also in a way that like you hear them out. Leadership is still a big topic for me. I feel like I spent the last two years listening to so many great leaders. And in some respect, I'm still processing a lot of what I learned and still going into kind of myself as, as a leader. Um, but there's a few things that stuck with me from my time at Stanford and that I'm kind of, you know, exploring these days. One is, I think you point out like empathetic leadership. Um, but I think this idea of like perspective taking a lot of leadership is not, it's not about you, it's about others. And so taking a second to reflect on how your words or actions are going to land on others, how others will receive them, um, is something that I believe is extremely important. The second point around leadership is this notion of excellence. You know, yeah. Often used like leading by example, but I think it goes like even further of, you know, respecting the people you work with, respecting their time, their competencies, their strengths, um, respecting the organization you work for. Um, and, you know, not excellence in terms of hours, but excellence in terms of the way that you show up um yeah. like being intentional and the third is just around being courageous I think when I shared my mental health story with the 5,000 employees at Oliver Wyman that was me being courageous I think mm -hmm. there's different you know ways to be brave and to lead the way but to the extent that a leader can give other permission to bring their true selves to work and to create communications around those difficult topics whether that is you know, mental health or diversity, equity, and inclusion, or really anything else. Um, you know, I see that as a great leader. Um, mm. I also thought it was very interesting in a lot of my um, classes at Stanford to, to see how different leaders showed up. And I think something yeah. that was like the art of storytelling. How do you bring mm. people along, you know, in terms of the vision you have for the company? Um, and just like being able to tell these stories in a very meaningful way um, was interesting to notice. It's been an absolute pleasure. And Sophie, so thank you very much for making the time and sharing so gracefully. For those listening in that may want to connect with you or check out some of your writing, how can people find you? And yeah, Well, thank you for having me um, and hope that my story resonates with others. And I love talking about this topic. So I'd love, would love for people to reach out. I'd say LinkedIn is probably the best place to see my publications. So what I, the pieces that I wrote and also just uh, send me a message or note. I'd love to connect. And that's a wrap for this episode. If you are enjoying our conversations, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All the conversations are recorded in video, so check us out on Instagram and Facebook at our handle at Bottled Up Oz. Drop us a comment or a message if any of these conversations resonate with you, and most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who might need it. So as always, this is Bottled Up. Thanks for being part of our family, and see you next time.